speaking of, sorry, of getting a couple from the Pensacola Revival. And uh, I rather hesitantly said, yes. So we got these two. The guy was a terrible speaker. He's the worst speaker that I think I've ever heard. And the lady was quite a good speaker. And what happened was we had a combined meeting of churches in Taupo, of a few churches that were, had made a commitment to work together. And at the end of the meeting, the Spirit of God fell, but from the Pensacola Revival. And it was the most amazing experience in, in terms of church leadership that I'd ever had. And for the next year or so, the pastors of the, these churches met together every Monday and prayed together. And we had regular services on a Saturday and a Sunday night combined. And it was incredible. And as a result of that, I went to the Pensacola Revival. But first I want, I'll ask the... Um, um, the yeah, good tech people up there. If you could put that first slide up, please. There's a very interesting um, verse, verse, set of verses right at the end of Exodus. And it's what happens after they set up the tabernacle. Now, that was a, a long and a difficult task. It wasn't easy. And it says that Moses set, set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. And the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Yeah. That's in a sense what happened in a very small way at the Brownsville Revival. It was um, June in 1995 and um, it was Father's Day. And John Fitzpatrick, um, Kilpatrick rather, and the church had been praying for quite a long time for revival. And the Spirit of God fell that day. And to cut a long story short... It was amazing, just incredible. Look, they were having meetings every night. People were, they had to turn the lights out at night to get rid of people from the church. As a result of that, people came from all over the world. Now, one night when we were there, they had an a overseas night, and there were people from about 80 different countries. Now, people were queuing up two or three days in advance to get into church. When we were there in 1998, they were queuing up all day. Fortunately, we were staying with somebody in the church. And when they opened the doors at about an hour before the service, there was this great flood of people came into the church. It was unreal. There were no Baptists at there because Baptists always arrived late and these people were there about a day beforehand. It was absolutely amazing. And I, I talked to quite a number of people there. And I said to one guy, I said, how long have you been in the church? Well, he was a church member. And, I, and he said, oh, years. And I said, what happened? He said, I went from being a church attender to a servant of the Lord overnight. That's, they had over four million people went through that church in about five years, five or six years. I worked out 16,000 people a week. They actually extended the runway in Pensacola in the airport and extended the airport facilities because of the revival. So I want to speak about a little bit about revival this morning. The word revival means an improvement of a condition. It means becoming popular and active. And what we're talking about is revival of our church, the church here, a re primarily a revival of our lives, but a revival of our church and a revival of the church in Christchurch and in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. We need it. We desperately need it. We're in that kind of situation now where it's becoming harder and harder to stand up for, for being a Christian. So, look, I need personal renewal. <laughs> I guarantee there's not one person in this room 
would, would say that they, they don't need a personal revival. They wouldn't need, they'd like to have more of God in their lives because that's in a sense what revival is. It's a huge, a greater awareness of the presence and the purposes of God in our lives. Now, so what I want to do is to take you into the Old Testament and we'll have a look at um, Genesis um, chapter 26 and the story here of Isaac. He planted crops in the land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. A man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. Next one, please. He had many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines, so many that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug up in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up and they filled them with earth or rocks and whatever. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, "Move away from us! You become too powerful for us." So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley valley of Gerar, where he settled. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had dug, had, had stopped up after Abraham died. And then he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug a well in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. Now, all of us know that water is essential for life. If you don't have water, you die. End of story. Water is also symbolic of the life that God gives us. There's a couple of interesting proverbs that I've, I've put up here. To him to flick them up. When you drink the water, remember the spring. A Chinese proverb. There's another one, a Slovakian one. Pure water is the world's first and foremost medicine. And I remember when, when I lived at a place called Patio in Central Otago, um, we had a had a well um, right next door to the house, and we used to go and have to pump water for the sheep. You used to have to prime it. But that water. Remember the old pour water onto the top of the pump and then prime it, and it was great. Water is found, the symbol of water is found so much in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Isaiah 12, 3 says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Jesus, remember he met the the lady at the well. And uh, he said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she said, Well, you've got nothing to to, um, draw with and the well's deep and, and where can you get this living water and... Jesus went on to say, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So water is essential for life. The water that's symbolic of the presence, the purposes, the power of God is essential for us as People, as individuals, as human beings, we are made for a relationship with God. Yeah. And, and what happens in the life of the church is that things just go down. We have, you know, as Isaac discovered, the Philistines had blocked up the wells. So they could no longer access the water. And what happens, church life is never like this. It's always like, it's always, and we have times of barrenness, of dryness. We have things that happen in the, our lives. Yeah, our church lives and stuff like that, and um, that's right. You're lucky. I've got quick feet, and uh, <laughs> and what happens is that the, the, the God's life, God's well, as it were, dries up for us, and that's true in our churches today. Look, I can remember. I I, I went to Bible college just like Don. This a few years ago, and that was when the the whole of the um, Charismatic movement was starting and there were churches, new life churches or wildlife churches we used to call them, spring up everywhere and there's a real move of God. And that's changed a lot. We've kind of almost retrenched again. So, look, 
what I want to say to you this morning, if, you want, if we want to have revival, we need to prepare for it. It's not just enough to say, I'm going to pray for it. Because the wells have been blocked up. And I don't care what's caused this to happen in the life of our churches. The thing is that we need to remove the rocks to allow the well, well to give forth the water that God has for us. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's not just enough to say, pray. Because there are things that we can do. All of us can do something this week, the week after, and the week after that will help us to repair for a revival. And I guess we all need to ask the question, do we want to see the church revived? Do you want to see it revived? Do you want more of God's life in you? Do you want to see more of God's life in our community? Because if you don't, you might as well get the door now. Otherwise, you're just here to play games with God. So what we're talking about, when we're talking about revival, a full-blown revival is really the extreme. And I want to tell you, um, beware of what you ask for because you may get it, because a full-blown revival is not just an extension of what we've got now. A full-blown revival is what we've got now turned upside down. How would you like it when you came to church on a Sunday to find a queue of people away around the corner waiting to get into church? How would you like it? You've got to walk so far because you can't get a car park. (laughs) Stuff like that. Revivals are incredibly messy and inconvenient. There's no order in a revival. It is God's Holy Spirit disorder. So be careful what we pray for. Now what I'd like to suggest to you is that we need to look at something a bit more realistic that instead of a full-blown revival, how about looking at our church growing by 20-30% next year and 20-30% more after that? See what I'm saying? And we can work towards that. And if God wants to add the revival bit on the top, that's great. So when we talk about revival, when we talk about these things, we're not talking about something theoretical. We're talking about your life. We're talking about my life. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about your family, your sons and daughters who aren't believers. We're talking about your neighbours who you love and care for, maybe your grandparents. My mother is not a, not a believer. We're talking about people who are living lives unaware of where they're going. We're talking about your workmates, who you care for, and who are living lives that are, in a sense, destroying them, them by, by their lifestyles. So what we're talking isn't theoretical. It's about people who God loves and God cares for. Yeah. And what I want to share with you this morning is the steps that we can take to bring in Renewal, revival, whatever you want to call it. That makes sense? Oh, cool. I'm glad you're with me. Okay. Let me say that first of all, revival is always associated with repentance. Now, you don't hear too many sermons on repentance these days. <laughs> but it's actually quite popular in the Bible. John the Baptist, who probably caused the biggest revival ever in history, he was black, black and white straight up and down. And with revival preaching, it's black and white. And you'll know exactly where you are. In Acts chapter 3, it says, Repent therefore and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. I tell you what, if the Spirit of God fell here this morning, most of us would be crying in messy little heaps on the floor because we've all got issues and stuff in our lives. 
And let's, you know, we all sit here, we're nice people, we get on pretty well, it's a great culture in the church. But the reality is, most of us sin and we just, you know, today, who kind of cares about the way people live? And the water from the world, the water from the world has got into the church boat, as it were, and the boat is affected by it. And let's be honest about that. A lot of the values that we've bought into as believers come from the world. Like in the United States, one of the things that struck me about Pensacola was, you know, the incredible revival. But everywhere we went, there were all these adverts for divorce lawyers. I kid you not. You know, adverts for divorce lawyers. Because it seems to be, you know, they, they have polygamy by installments over there. You know, <laughs> that's a fact. Um, and it was kind of, you couldn't match the two up. Crazy. So, let me tell you where revival starts. It starts with thirst. If you want water, you'll go looking for water, and you'll dig for water if you are thirsty. And you'll dig until you find it. Why did Abraham, why did Isaac rather, have to dig the water? Why did they have to um, clean the wells out? Because it was essential for life. If they didn't open the wells, they were going to die. It wasn't just him, it was his family, the whole extended clan, the flocks and the rest of it. If they didn't empty the wells out and get the water back again, they were going to die. We need to pray first of all for a thirst, that God will give us a holy thirst so that we are not satisfied with what we've got now, that we will want more and more and more. You know, on the last day of the festival, the festival of tabernacle, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let everyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. Man, I don't feel like that at times, do you? I feel like I'm empty and dry. I feel I've got a lot to give at times. You know, I'd love to have that river of living water flowing from me. You know, there's an interesting story associated with this. At the foothills of Mount Moriah, by the city of David, flows a natural spring. It's an ancient spring, and it's literally located in the shadow of the temple. Interesting. It's always had a spiritual significance for Israel. It's the original source of Jerusalem's water. And so every, every day at the Feast of Tabernacles, the priests descended down there, and they filled a golden flask of pure water. So it becomes symbolic. And that's why in Isaiah it says, With joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. Okay. So what are the rocks that we need to remove in order to let the water flow again? Um, Well, let's first of all say that pulling rocks out of a well is probably not an easy job. It's probably a difficult job. It's more than one person can do. But it's something that we can all do together. Make sense? Yeah. And you may say, well, I'm, I'm 85, I can't do very much. But you can pick up one little rock and let the young guys or whatever pick up the big rocks. <laughs> See what I mean? So it's one rock at a time. And this is the wonderful thing about what I'm talking about. You know, we can pray for revival, but we need to take responsibility in removing some of the rocks that are stopping the water flowing. And you can pick a rock that's appropriate to your age, your size, and all the rest of it. So let me share with you some ideas. And um, I've got seven areas that I want to talk about. First of all, I want to talk about these in a negative sense and a positive sense, because I want you to go over the positive thing. 
The first of all is the rock of a negative attitude. And, you know, I, mentioned, I talked a couple of weeks ago on the right attitude to Scripture, so I'm not going to talk about that again. But that's a real key one. But I will say that all revivals are accompanied by a rediscovery of biblical truth. And I asked you to think about that. And for me, I think that probably a real sense of God's holiness is, is something that we would rediscover if we had a revival. But one of the areas, other areas of negative um, attitude is this. It's a negative attitude which says, I don't believe anything like that can happen here. Now let me give you an example. I went to the Arise Church for a number of years in Wellington. I've had all my kids have been through Arise, and I've seen God do some amazing things. My daughter was with John Cameron virtually when he started the church. They had about 30 people there. They now fill the Wellington Town Hall, and they have huge mission outreach. They do all kinds of great things. And I've had pastors say to me, I said to them, why do you find out what Arise does? Oh, no, no, we don't want to know anything about them. We don't agree with what they're doing. Hey, get a life. These are people with churches that are not growing. They're going backwards, and you've got a church that is growing, that is exploding with young people, you know, under about 25, the majority of them be under 25, and you say you don't want to know anything about it? Yeah. I've heard that from a lot of people, people in church. No, we don't want to know anything about it. We don't agree with, do you agree with everything everyone does? <laughs> of course you don't. I tell you what, Arise have got a lot that can teach us. Yeah. We need to learn because they've discovered something They've un helped unblock the wells. Yeah. And you may say, look, I can't do anything. I can't make a difference. That's a negative attitude. Yeah. That's not true. You get before God and ask him what you can do. Yeah. So your part is a key perspective, <laughs> is a key in this. You can remove a rock that will help the water to flow again. And I'll give you some handles on that later on. Okay, the second rock that I think we need to remove, and I, I'm not going to talk a lot on these because I'll run out of time, and uh, Graham will say something. Um, <laughs> the second thing, second rock, is personal unwillingness to repent or change. Now, one of the advantages of just being new in the church is that I don't know much about the history of it, so I don't really know you too well, so I can say things that I won't be standing on people's feet, and if I do, it'll be unintentional. But what happens when a church starts moving and starts growing and developing and, and you have changes, like you've got a new auditorium, some people don't like change, they struggle with it, and they really get, they get offended. And sometimes they can stay in the church and keep those offences in their lives. Yeah. And it really locks them up spiritually. Yeah. And I remember when I, the first church I pastored was in Owaka in South Otago, down in the Catlins. And uh, when we first started there, we met out a little kitchen area out the back, and there was about 15 or 20 people or whatever. And then we moved into the main church auditorium, which hadn't been used for years, because the church really started growing, and we had some really neat times down there. And they had this big, high, old pulpit there, and it was sort of built into the actual building, as it were. And it was about that high, and I used to have to step up into it, and you'd be looking down at everyone and all the rest of it. And anyway... I talked to a few people, and I decided, well, it wasn't really appropriate for my style of things, you know, and, and where we were as a church. So we had a church meeting about it, and um, we decided to get rid of it. Now, it was made of rimu and stuff, a beautiful thing, and one of the guys in the church had been involved in building it. He was an older guy, and he was about 75 or 80. He wasn't at the meeting, 
and uh, he got really excited about it and uh, came round to me and uh, he was really, you know, quite really upset, like really, really upset about it. And um, I thought it was a great idea. And I said to him, Roy, I said, look, I said, we both can't be right. I said, either you're right, God wants it to remain there, or I'm right, and the church is right, because we voted on it, get rid of it. He was spitting tax, I tell you. Anyway, he came around to see me a couple of days later. He said, um, he said God spoke to me. He said, it needs to go. And it was amazing. But you know, the most amazing thing was what happened in that guy's life. He went from being an objectionable old man who complained about virtually everything I did to an incredibly you know, supportive... His whole life blossomed as a believer. And about nine months later, him and his wife, Velma, they went up to Whangapra um, to retire, to live. And one of our elders said to me, he said, man, he said, he said nine months ago, he said, we would have taken a collection to have got rid of that, rid of that guy. <laughs> he did, that's what he said to me. And he said, but man, he said, we're going to really miss him. Now, what it took was he came up against something. Now, he could have continued on harboring that bitterness, resentment, but he let God speak to him. Yeah. You know, and we need to be bigger than some of the bitterness and resentments that we have. So, look, if you've got anything in your life like that, deal with it. It's a block, that, it's a rock that needs to be removed. Yeah. Another one. You may have been in a situation, a life group or something, and it's nice and comfortable. And I know that the church wants to develop life groups. You may be in a situation where it's been like that for years, just comfortable. You don't want to change it. Can I just suggest very carefully that your comfort may be an idol? You may actually need to deal with it. Now let me tell you another story associated with this. I was in Kaikaui. I was pastoring up there. And I had a bit of a garden. And uh, I got this plant. It was still in this little container. You know how you buy the plants and you transplant them and they grow? Well, I had this plant in this little container and I got a cabbage from the garden. Here's a little plant in the container and a cabbage from the garden. And I said to the people, I said, how old do you think both of them are? Oh, everyone said, well, the plant, you've, you've only just got it. I said, it's exactly the same age as the cabbage. The problem is that it needs to be taken out of the container and given some room to grow. Now, there are many people in churches who are like that plant in the little container. They're scared to get out of the little box that they've imprisoned themselves in. Their security's become an idol. And that's a rock that needs to be removed because your giftings and the potential that God has with you needs to be transplanted into somewhere where you can grow as a person to fulfill what God has for you. Does that make sense? Okay? So, now, so that's the second one. The first one is the rock of a negative attitude, and the second is a personal willingness to repent or change. The third one has to do with their church culture. I think we've actually got a pretty good church culture here. All I want to say with this is that you know, one of the things that I really appreciated when I came into the church is people speaking to me. <laughs> and you may say, well, that's not a biggie. I kid you not, you go into a lot of churches and they go out of their way not to talk to you. <laughs> that's fair go. What I want to say is that, look, build on that. Make a commitment that everyone who comes into the church, if you don't know them, you go up and talk to them. And if, if, you, if you feel you don't know what to say, well, just say anything. It's better to go. You get, get it, pull that rock out, as it were, from the well. 
and go and talk to them. Just say, hi, look, my name is, you know, is this your first time here today? You know, whatever. You don't know how much it means to people, particularly if they're visiting in a new church, or particularly if they're people sitting on the edge. The church is quite a scary place to go. But if three or four people come up to them and say, hi, hey, you visited, good to see you this morning, is this your first time? People go out with a real, they want to come back. Well, who wants to go back to a church where no one talks to you? So church culture is a, is a really is an important one. Now the fourth one, this is something that um, I, I think is a real key in today's um, churches. And first of all, it's a lack of hospitality. It's the rock of a lack of hospitality in our churches. And it's very, very seldom practiced these days in churches. And yet it's in the Bible, it talks about it a lot. I'm in Romans, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Okay, in First Peter, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now look, I know that it's not everyone's cup of tea to, to be hospitable and have groups of people in your place. So don't feel guilty if, if that's not your gifting. But what I'm talking about here is people for whom it is a God-given calling. Now let me just give you an illustration. I was involved with the Wellington Central Baptist Church for a while. There was a wonderful couple there who had a particular focus on Asian students. And there were a lot of Asian students from Malaysia and that coming into Wellington at that time. And this couple, Rua and Noel Chandler, um, made it their focus to offer hospitality for these Asian students. And most of them, many of them were not Christians, but they'd come along and they were disconnected from family life and that, and they'd have friends, maybe are Christians. And Rua and Noel had this hospitality ministry. And what happened was a result of that, many of those Asian students became Christians and went on to pastor churches in Malaysia and, and, and had wonderful ministries, all because they came into a church and found somebody who loved them and cared for them, which is what hospitality is an expression of. So if you've got a gift of hospitality, please exercise it. And maybe you can only feel comfortable with, offer, with inviting a couple of people around for a meal. Just do it. It's one of the gifts that God has. And, and has for, you know, so, okay, enough on that. The fifth one, John dealt with the last week, but I'm going to mention a wee bit this morning. Um, the fifth rock we need to remove is a lack of prayer and fasting. Now, I like food and I don't like fasting. So, <laughs> so, so maybe that's a rock that I need to remove. Um, but look, we don't want to put, put anyone under a guilt, guilt trip here. But can I suggest one little thing you could do? How about just making a commitment once a month to come to the prayer meeting before church? Once a month. Could you do that? That's all you need. Or... As John suggested, find someone to pray for with during the week and start praying for the church. Or take an extra five minutes a day and just pray for the future of the church. It doesn't have to be big. The rocks that you pick up and remove to let the water flow don't have to be big rocks, but they're all important. They all need to be removed. Yeah. Get what I'm saying? Yeah. So one of the other things I would like to suggest is that, I, first of all, I really appreciate praying for healing in the services. But why don't we take five minutes out of a service and pray for our community and for our nation. I mean, we've got Don doing an incredible work among people. Why don't we just take five minutes you know, and just pray for what 
we're trying to focus on. We want those people to become believers. Why don't we pray for it in the service? We all own it. Does that make sense? It's only five minutes. What's more important? My back being healed or people coming to the Lord? See what I'm saying? Okay. Okay, so, number six. Here we're going for time. Um, six, the sixth rock you need to remove is having no vision. Now, Helen Keller, some of you will never heard of Helen Keller. She was born blind and deaf. How would you like that? Not very pleasant. She was the first person to earn a degree being blind and deaf. And somebody asked her one day, they said, what could be worse than being blind? And she said, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight, but no vision. Wow. <laughs> Incredibly perceptive comment. And when we're talking about vision, we're talking about where we're looking at for the future, where we're going, what we want to achieve. Now, I don't care whether you're, you're 10, 15, 20, 40, 50, 90. You should still have a sense of direction about where God wants to take you or to take you as part of the church. Second Peter says, add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge, self-control, perseverance and so on. Add to. My first question is, what are you looking at adding to this year? What does God want you to add in your life? For me... I've made a commitment to this church and I'm making a commitment to do certain things and, and, you know, there's always a time cost in these things. But what would you sooner have? A life that is honouring to God, doing the things that God wants, or to selfishly just live for yourself? Well, that really is the choice. So as a church, why don't we set some goals for what Don's doing? Now, he's doing an incredible job with icons. What about having a part of the vision is that we give every member of those family and all the kids a Bible at the end of the year. Wouldn't that be great? It's just a suggestion. We need a vision as a church, and we have a vision as a church. But we need to know where we're going. Okay. Number seven. Number six is not having vision. So put in place a vision. It doesn't need to be huge. They're just things that, maybe some things that you've never done before, you want to achieve, some things that you think God may want you to own, start moving into them. Number seven really is a lack of faith, or a lack of sharing our faith. And um, this is not being heavy about evangelism and say you've got to show beyond the four spiritual laws or whatever. But I believe a lot of Christians really are handicapped by they have a fear of sharing their faith. And in Romans it says, well, how are they going to find out unless somebody tells them? How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who share good news. Can I just give you a couple of tips? You know, you'll often be with people that are not believers, struggling with issues, and they offload on you. I mean, I get this at work a bit, you know, with people. And ask them a question. Say to them, look, you know, I'm a Christian. Do you mind if I just share the difference that God's made in my life. Now, that's not offensive. You're not dropping anyone. If they say no, well, it's fine. At least they know where you stand. Or you could just say to them, look, okay, and I appreciate you know, the issues you're having. Do you mind if I just share with you what I think, how I think God can help your life? And then they'll ask you, yeah, that's okay. And you've got an open door to share your faith. That's not hard, is it? 
If I asked you, you tell me about your faith. I was talking to Andrew the other day, and he's got amazing, some amazing stories, and uh, just little things that he'd done with people. You know, ask him sometime. Great. It was a real, real blessing talking to you the other day. And um, just little things, one person by one person. So look for opportunities. Don't be afraid. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Okay? Right. Okay. Now, suggestions. Um, Yeah, okay. Let me just finish with two stories. And uh, the first is a story about a guy who was the first to communicate the gospel to more than a million people before radio and TV. And you've never heard of him, have you? His name was Sam Jones. And it was in the 1800s in America. I was going to read the story. Very interesting, just briefly. In 1868, Sam married Lauren Laurel McElwain. He became a lawyer and hobnobbed with other hard-drinking men. Within four years, alcohol and gambling had brought him, his family and children to ruin. He moved from place to place and finally was reduced to shoveling coal for 12 hours a day. While on a six-week drinking binge, he learned that his father was dying. He staggered to the bedside where his father pleaded with him to meet him in heaven, Sam promised. Afterwards, he begged a drink from a bartender, suddenly he saw his vomit-covered reflection in the mirror. He smashed the glass and fell to his knees, begging God for mercy. After three days of strong coffee, he cleaned up, brought new clothes, and went home to his wife. He had beaten black and blue. Honey, God's given you a new husband and the children a new daddy. And I wonder if you could forgive me and start all over again. She grabbed me in her arms, he said, and cried, Hallelujah, I've been praying for this. (laughs) See? It only takes one person. It may be the person that you share with that is the catalyst for revival. And that guy went on to preach in America. And they published his sermons in the newspapers every day. He reached more than a million people. And if you're, if you're country music fans, the, the great story about the Grand Old Opry, which is the home of country music, and what happened, um, how that was built. And I won't bore you with the story. Okay, the second, um, the second story I want to share with is this. It's a well-known story, but it's a story about a traveller in the Middle Ages who happened upon a large work site in the centre of a village. He'd been travelling for many days and was eager to talk to anyone who would engage with him. He walked up to a worker at the site and asked, Sir, may I ask what you're doing? The worker scowled a bit and said tersely, I'm cutting stones. The traveller decided he'd find a little conversation there, so he moved on to another worker. When he asked the same question, the worker paused for a moment and explained that he was cutting stones so he could support his family. He had a wonderful wife, two small children who depended on him to provide them with food and shelter. They chatted about the project in the village for a few minutes, and the worker turned back to his large pile of stones. So he moved to a third worker and asked the same question, Sir, may I ask what you're doing? The worker put down his tools, stood quite tall, looked at the traveller in the eye, and said with a warm smile, I'm building a cathedral. For the glory of God. It'll be the tallest and most magnificent structure for miles around. Its beauty and delight and its beauty and it will delight people for centuries to come. The stone I'm now working on will go near the front door where people will enter for shelter and kinship. I'll probably not see the final product, but I know my work is part of something important. And the other day, 
I have the last slide up. We were putting screws in chairs. What were we doing? Just putting screws in chairs? No, we weren't. We were building something for the glory of God. And your work can be as insignificant seemingly as putting a screw in a chair. But what you're doing is something that's going to have a huge impact together for the future. What I want us to do before we find sing the final song, does it make sense what I'm talking about? I'd like us to just stand for a minute. And if you want to pray, pray for our church. Pray in response to what God has said to you this morning. I'd invite you to pray. So just want to stand for a minute and let's pray. So you can respond just as you feel the Spirit of God and then we'll ask the musicians to... Yeah.